Our sermon text this morning is Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. Every week I title my sermon way before I write my sermon, and some weeks what I think my sermon will be about doesn't end up being what my sermon is actually about. The title is not reflective of what I write. This was one of those weeks. So if you don't mind, I'm going to retitle my sermon this morning, A Post-Election Gospel. A post-election gospel. Friends, let's turn to our text this morning, Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But But be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy, and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth. And one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw with the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy On all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A post-election gospel. Did you hear that there was an election on Tuesday? Did you hear about that? Representatives and senators and governors and school board members and sheriffs and town council members were all on the ballot Schools and gyms and churches and municipal buildings were transformed into polling places all throughout the country. The talking heads were predicting, the reporters were exit polling, and everyone was sporting their I voted sticker. Election Day is one of the hallmarks of our democracy. It's perhaps the foremost reason why I am proud to be an American, a government established by the people, for the people. And while the air of Tuesday had that familiar, excited, hopeful, democratic charge, while Election Day is always brimming with possibility and hope, the positivity of Election Day is not representative of the entirety of the pre- and post-election cycle. And I think you know what I'm talking about. I can't tell you how many postcards I've gotten over the last three months from two guys named Tom, 
who don't particularly like one another. I think you get that one. On Saturdays, while I'm watching my Michigan Wolverines, there hasn't been a single commercial break that didn't feature one candidate slinging mud at another candidate or a candidate offering the highest and loftiest of guarantees. And now on the Sunday after the election, we're either elated or dejected. If our guys or gals won, we're elated, waiting eagerly for the promises made on the campaign trail to be delivered. And if our guys or gals lost, we're dejected, waiting in fear for the unwanted promises to be fulfilled. Elation or dejection, joy or depression, exhilaration or misery, in our politically polarized, media-hyped, extraordinarily reactive culture, there's no in-between. An article written by Jacob Hilsheim on Rewire.com found that the average American president, and I know that this was a midterm election, but just, just listen to this. this. In this article by Jacob Hilsheim on Rewire.com, he did some re- research and he found that the average American president fulfills about 55% of the promises made on the campaign trail. 55%. It's okay, it's over 50%, but it's not, it's not great, 55%. And it's not for a lack of trying. Most presidents attempt, and most elected officials, attempt to enact their platforms and policies, but they're always up against a myriad of factors, from the health of the economy to the makeup of Congress, from geopolitical concerns to natural disasters. No president or any other elected official can guarantee that the platform they're running on will be fully and perfectly enacted. For example, in 1916, President Woodrow Wilson used the slogan, he kept us out of the war to win re-election. Just five months into his presidency, under Commander-in-Chief Woodrow Wilson, the United States entered World War I. He kept us out of the war. The U.S. enters World War I. On the campaign trail in 1988, George H.W. Bush said to a crowd of supporters, read my lips, no new taxes. As president in 1990, the same George H.W. Bush said, it is clear to me that both the size of the deficit problem and the need for a package that can be enacted require tax revenue increases. On the campaign trail in 2008, Senator Barack Obama promised if he were to win the presidency, he would break down the walls dividing Democrats and Republicans. He would unify a nation that had become divided along partisan lines. And yet the first presidential election after Obama's presidency in 2016, when Donald Trump ran against Hillary Clinton, is considered by many political experts to be the most polarized election in American history. I can go on if you'd like, but I think you get the point. When we vote for a candidate, we are voting for a fallen, fallible, finite human being who will make mistakes, who will disappoint us, who will not be able to do everything they promised us they would be able to do. I'm not saying that this should repel us from participating in the political process. 
Our faith should inform how we vote, and we should be active agents in shaping the world we live in. Our votes should seek justice. Our votes should love mercy. In the political process, we should walk humbly with our God, as the prophet Micah instructs. Our votes, we should want our votes to enable streams to to flow down, uh, righteousness to flow down like waters, and and justice like an ever-flowing stream. We, We should, as Christians, be active agents in shaping our world. We should be active in the political process. But what I want to say this morning is that we should not place too much hope or too much despair in a candidate, nor should we be too joyous or too depressed due to the result of a vote. As Christians, our hope is not found in a candidate who, like the grass, will wither or like the flower will fade. Our hope is found in the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Our joy as Christians is not found in a state or national campaign victory. Our joy is found in the one who buried sin and rose in victory over evil. As we look up, as the psalmist did, to the hills, as we look up to the hills of Peapack Gladstone, the the yards of our neighbors peppered with their political signs, we see, as the psalmist did, that our help does not come from the hills. Our help does not come from the yard signs, nor the names on the yard signs. But rather, our help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth, and the yard signs, and the people with their names on the yard signs. If you're feeling a little too high, or a little too low, after Tuesday... This morning, I want you to allow Isaiah's vision of the new creation to reorient, recalibrate, restore, and restory your heart, soul, mind, and imagination. Isaiah begins our text this morning by reporting these words from God to us. For I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. For the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The Hebrew word for create, I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The Hebrew word for create is the word bore. And it's a verb that is only attributed to God throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Bore means divine creating, the kind of creating only God can accomplish. On the first page of the first chapter of the first verse of the Bible, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God boreed the heavens and the earth. He divinely created the heavens and the earth. He did what only he himself, God, could do. On the first page of scripture, God reveals himself to be a divine creator. And here in our Isaiah passage, God, again, true to his character, reveals himself not just to be a creator, but a recreator, a redeemer, a restorer. Creation that was good and right and whole and perfect in the beginning has run amok has gone astray, has sowed sin and reaped death. It's not the way that it was when God first borayed it. And we know this disordered and dysfunctional world all too well. It's the world that every prince and king and queen and president and mayor and governor and senator has tried to fix, but has failed to fix, and, is most, of, and most of the time has made even worse. But, but God, but God, 
because he's a God who is unconditionally committed to that which he borrowed in the beginning, comes down, enters in, becomes one with the very creatures who messed up his perfect creation. And not only does Jesus come down and enter in and become one with humanity, but further, his entire life and ministry is spent boraying, recreating, redeeming, restoring, leprous skin turned radiant, broken and paralyzed limbs, mended whole, perpetual bleeding, stopped up, socially ostracized people, reinstated into community, insufficient loaves and fish made into a 5,000 family feast, the grave, death, robbed by resurrection victory, a victory that gives us an appetizer, a foretaste, a sneak peek of the new heavens and new earth that will soon be ours when he comes again. The God we worship and serve is a God who borrowed the world in the beginning, who created the world out of nothing, who loves the world so deeply and so dearly that he came to borrow it anew by living, dying, and rising in it. And he's so faithfully committed to loving the world that he created, lived for, and died for that he will one day come again to re-borrow it finally and completely and entirely for eternity. On that day, No more shall the sound of weeping be heard or the cry of distress. On that day, we shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for we shall be offspring blessed by the Lord. On that day, we will call and God will answer. While we are yet speaking, God will hear. On that day, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. On that day, the serpent The deceiver, the enemy, shall eat dust. On that day we shall not hurt or destroy on all of God's holy mountain. Frederick Buechner says that shall is the verb of hope. And as surely as God created the world, and as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, God shall create, bore, a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus comes again. He will restore Eden. He will reinstate paradise. This is our high and holy Christian hope. So, while you may be disappointed or elated with Tuesday's results, don't get too high or too low. It wasn't the ultimate victory or the final defeat. You're allowed to be disappointed. You're allowed to be happy. But remember, while the average American president only fulfills 55% of their campaign promises, and I'm guessing that percentage is even lower for senators and representatives, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fulfills 100% of his covenantal promises. This week, remember that Tuesday's vote is but a small blip in the massive history of the world. And when God's good future is ushered in, it will be a minuscule, teeny-weeny, itty-bitty speck of the former things that Isaiah said will no longer be remembered. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.